Jerome was born in 348 AD in an obscure corner of northern Italy. He was the youngest of the 4th century figures like Athanasius and Ambrose. But his maturity of both mind and spirit preceded his young age. Early in life, Jerome was devoted to the study of Scripture and to Christian literature. Jerome would write these words as he reflected on the world in which he found himself. Who could have believed that Rome, built by the conquest of the world, would fall? That the mother of many nations turned to her grave. As he reflected, how could something so great crumble so quickly and so steadily? It was as if overnight the entire world was turned upside down. But in the providence of God, the fall of Rome led to one of the most pivotal and substantial works that the young and early church would have, and it would be through the brilliance of Jerome. Many of us don't know him at all, we've never studied him, but if you grew up reading your King James Bible, you were accustomed to his work. You see, Jerome had a brilliant mind, and he invested so much of his time studying ancient Hebrew, and classical Greek, Koine Greek for that matter. He was unlike so many in his age, and and so Jerome took up the task of translating the Bible in everyday language. There There was no Bible that the average man could read and in the Latin language. There was no Latin translation. Not like us today where we have a plethora of English translations available. Uh, the average churchgoer had to learn either Hebrew or Greek in order to read their Bible. And so Jerome took up this task of translating the Bible into Latin. And it, and it was called the Latin Vulgate, which meant Latin in everyday man, in, in the common vernacular, the, the word on the street, it was, it was customary language. It, it wasn't high and lofty, it, it was understandable. Now why would Jerome spend so much time and so much effort, even at the face of opposition? In fact, Augustine uh, cautioned him in his work, he actually encouraged him not to fiddle around with the Old Testament, because the the early church had believed that the Greek translation called the Septuagint of the Old Testament was inspired. And so, Jerome, don't fiddle around with that. Just leave that alone, Augustine said. But he did anyways. Well, of course, this translation, the Latin Vulgate, became the standard translation throughout the Middle Ages all the way up into the Reformation. It is the translation that the King James was based upon. The translation that maybe you have in your hand today. Friend, it is a reminder to us that Christianity is not new. It's not novel. It's not that, that we somehow have a corner on Christianity. Friend, we stand on the shoulders of so many giants that came before us. And you've noticed and perhaps bored with it that every Sunday in this new year, you've learned of some new figure. 
It's not because I hope to communicate dry, boring history to you that only Josh Verkler is excited to hear, but rather so that you get to know your brothers and sisters. These are your brothers, your sisters. They're your family members that you will live for eternity with. And your redemption and your understanding of Jesus is because of their faithfulness to follow Jesus. Jerome would do this work because he believed in the power of the Word. He was a staunch defender of the truth, fighting against theological errors like that of Pelagianism. All so that you and I could hold the unadulterated truth of God so that we would know how to follow Jesus. So that we could open our Bibles this morning and read Luke chapter 12 and there find the words of Jesus and know exactly, without a doubt, how to follow Jesus. This is what we've taken up over the last several weeks. Jesus is on a journey. His disciples are following Him. It is a wonderful picture of the Christian life. Disciples following Jesus. And that's exactly what we see in this section of Luke's Gospel. We are learning how to follow Jesus. The technical term for this is discipleship. And the practical is discipling. We are being discipled by the doctor named Luke. He is helping us how to follow Jesus. How to fight unbelief that might infiltrate our souls. How to fight against theological error like that of the religious hypocrites. How to know when we will face danger. How to deal with the dangers ahead. Like any journey, any, any travel that we take, we know that along that journey will be dangers. We will encounter signs along the road that will say, danger, warning, danger ahead. Rocks might fall on your car. Be careful as you drive through there. Warning, there is some construction going on ahead. We are accustomed to warnings in our everyday life. And Jesus here is preparing his disciples for some dangers ahead. And he warns them about what is coming around the corner. Well, friend, with that in mind, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 12. And this morning, we're going to take up verses 1 through 34 in our thinking today. Luke chapter 12, it's found on 871 in the Pew Bibles, 871. If you're not accustomed to looking at the Bible, uh, the large numbers are the chapter numbers, and those smaller numbers are the verse numbers. So find the large number 12, and uh, and we're going to begin right there. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another... Jesus began to say to his disciples, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be made known. 
Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who can kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about what you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentiful. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to Saul, Saul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. And Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Even then you are not able to do as small a thing as that. Why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow it is thrown into the oven. How much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. 
Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Well, friend, as we consider this passage, we, we see several warnings, do we not? As Jesus prepares his disciples for the difficult journey ahead, he prepares them by warning them of several dangers. Friend, following Jesus is a dangerous journey. Following Jesus is a dangerous journey with many difficulties. Therefore, to be forewarned is to be forearmed, to be prepared for the, the potential difficulties. And so this morning, my hope is that you and I leave with the preparations needed to face these dangers head on, to not be afraid of them, to not seek to turn around and go the other way, but rather to face them head on. And so Jesus here, if you take notes, warns his disciples of five dangers that they will face. Five points to this sermon. First, hypocrisy. The first danger that his disciples are warned is that of hypocrisy. Danger number two, fear of man. Fear of man. Danger number three, blasphemy. Blasphemy. Danger number four, covetousness. To covet your neighbor's stuff. And the fifth and final danger we'll consider this morning is that of anxiety. The danger of anxiety. Well, the first danger that Jesus warns his disciples is that of hypocrisy. Uh, this follows, of course, on the heels of what we considered last week in chapter 11. In chapter 11, Jesus had a confrontation with the religious leaders, uh, the Pharisees and the scribes, those that were seen to be the moral example and the teachers of the, of the nation of Israel. And, and so Jesus uh, confronts them, and confronts them particularly on the subject of their hypocrisy. Uh, they looked like they had their lives together, but inwardly they were broken. They looked as if everything was going well for their lives, but in fact things were a disaster. And so Jesus, after this confrontation, turns to his disciples and warns them not to follow in their footsteps. It's interesting, isn't it, that, that Luke records all of this when the crowds are the largest. And something I would encourage you to maybe study on your own is notice that Jesus says some of the most provocative and difficult things when the crowds were the largest. Think about that. Big doesn't mean better. And Jesus knows that when there's a lot of people amassed together, they, they can think that this is right, this is good, this, this must be where we're, we're supposed to be. But Jesus says, no, get out of here, get away. And this is what he does for his disciples. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Leaven leavens the whole lump. 
If you put just a little bit of yeast with some water and flour, you know that that yeast will work its way and grow and feed off the sugar and begin to grow and, and make its way throughout the entire loaf. And Jesus says a little bit of hypocrisy will spread like cancer in your body and it will overtake you. What is hypocrisy? Hypocrisy essentially is doing some deed in order to be seen by others in a better light. It's a play acting. It's to fake it. To put on some pretentious air about yourself, and in the context here, of religion, uh, saying that you're morally good and right with Jesus in order to impress others. You see, the problem with hypocrisy is it does not allow honesty. Hypocrisy only spreads dishonesty. And so as Christians, we want to live in the light and not in the darkness. That's why Jesus says, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Uh, Friend, one of the most frightening verses in your Bible is right here. In chapter 12, verse 2, that every one of our deeds done in secret will one day be put on a giant billboard. We saw a glimpse of that in Daniel chapter 7. Did you catch it? 10,000 by 10,000s were standing before, and the courts were set in sessions, and the books were opened. What does that mean? Friend, that means your life from beginning to end will be bared open before The watching world. It does cause a bit of pause, doesn't it, of how we live. We think that when we do things in secret, that somehow we get away with it. Friend, my prayer for you is that you would be exposed as the fraud that you are. Not so that we could point our fingers in shame, but so that you could come into the light and know the true saving power of Jesus Christ. That's my prayer for my children, for myself, that we would never find the darkness as a good place to live. Living pretentiously as actors in a religious play that we would live honest lives before God and before one another. So the first danger is that of hypocrisy. Secondly, the fear of man. Jesus quickly goes on and he says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who can kill the body. Now, he's just confronted these religious leaders who have the authority to execute Jesus, to execute the disciples. And, of course, they will follow through with their threats. They will kill him. And Jesus says, don't fear man, but rather fear God. The fear of man is a debilitating disease. It cripples even the strongest man. And that's what we see here. He says, don't fear those who can kill you and then after you're dead can do nothing to you. Isn't that kind of glorious to think about? I mean, what's the worst that can happen to you? You die and then you're with Jesus. But rather, he says, don't fear man who can't do anything more to you in eternity, but rather fear the one who has authority to not only kill you, 
but cast you into hell. Now this ought to be a theological change in your mind right now. Because so many of us think about God as this benevolent God that would never condemn anyone to hell. Well, that is frankly contrary to Scripture. Throughout the Bible, we see that God has authority over man. That God has authority over His creation. That the potter can create some clay for noble use and some clay for dishonorable use. Yes, God does send people to hell. Because they have rebelled against Him. And He would not be a just and righteous God if He did not condemn sinners. And that is why we need Jesus. The One who is condemned in the place of sinners. We need that saving blood so that we will not be cast into hell ourselves. Brothers and sisters, we ought to have a good dose of the fear of God brought back into our lives. We ought to have our consciences informed with this truth that man can't do nothing to us, but that God will. God will. And you think that you can skate by on your good looks and your reasonable moral life, but at the end of the day, you will stand in judgment before a holy God. That is why we preach and teach the gospel here. Because we want you to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. We don't want you to be cast into hell. We're reminded of the great reformer, Thomas Cramner. Cramner was instrumental in leading the reform in the Church of England. In fact, his, one of his liturgies is the liturgy that we use every Lord's Day here, Thomas Cramner. That order of service is not Pastor Chris, that's Thomas Cramner who wrote that. But Cramner was forced into prison and exiled because he believed that the Word of God was true, essentially. And he bucked against the powers that be. And he was, he was put in prison. But, but he was so tempted to recant and, and to, to go back on his word. And he ultimately did. He recanted. And he says, yes, everything I've done to try to reform the church was wrong. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Ultimately, Cramner would be burned alive because of his Protestant leanings and understandings. And, and, and the, the day he was burned alive, he cried out he, and reached out his hand to the flame. And he says, Father, forgive me. Let, let this hand be harmed first as a testimony and reminder, as a confession of my sin. He feared God more than he feared the Pope. or the papacy, or anyone else in the church. Brothers and sisters, let us fear God, because He is the final judge. And perhaps that's where you struggle this morning. You fear man, you fear what people think about you, what people can do to you. Brother, sister, let us cultivate a right fear of God. When we rightly fear God, we will not be tempted for our wills to be bent to that of those around us. But we'll be men and women of conviction, 
standing on the truth. Could, could you put your hand to the flame? Executed? Because of your beliefs? Do you even have such beliefs and convictions? Well, the third danger before us comes there in verses 8 through 12. The danger of blasphemy. Well, this is perhaps one of the most misunderstood passages in the Gospel of Luke. Look with me at again. Jesus here warns against a certain kind of blasphemy. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge before the angels of God. But anyone who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. It is a warning, isn't it? Don't deny Jesus, or he'll deny he knows you. What a frightening thing, is it? To turn up into heaven. Hey, Jesus, I'm here. And he look at you and say, I don't know who you are. That is fearful, isn't it? Jesus warns here that those who speak a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. That means that Jesus will be gracious. But there's this phrase here that, that, that causes people some concern, and that is the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And so many Christians run around like concerned, like, oh my gosh, if I done this, I don't, I'm not going to be forgiven. No, no, no. The picture here in this, in this particular verse is that of persistent and unrepentant resistance against the work of the Holy Spirit and the message concerning Jesus. It is both a persistent and an unrepentant resistance. You might say, well, help me understand why that's such a big deal. Well, see, it's the Holy Spirit's role in the Godhead, in the redemptive plan of God, to bring about what, what we call the new birth or regeneration or in the kind of old being born again. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. And to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to reject the Spirit's work in us. To say, I'm not going to listen to your convicting word. I'm not going to follow Jesus. I want nothing to do. It is a militant attack upon the work of the Holy Spirit. And you see, even in the context here, the Holy Spirit is not a conquering army to be avoided, but a helper that teaches. To teach us. He, he tells his disciples, hey, don't worry about you know, trying to come up with things to say. The Holy Spirit will give you words when you face the tribunal. He's a helper. That's what he does. It's like spitting in the face of your benevolent grandmother who's only here to help you. Jesus warns them of rejecting the Holy Spirit's work. There is no forgiveness. And some Christians worry that they have committed this. But the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit of repentance and faith is proof that you never did that and you never will, friend. So if you're in Christ this morning and there is evidence of repentance and faith in your life, this verse is not applicable to you. But it is a reminder and a warning of the danger of blasphemy. The danger of a hard heart towards the Holy Spirit keeps the unbeliever from truly knowing the greatness of God. The fourth danger, covetousness. To covet the things of others. Jesus goes on to warn his disciples of coveting. 
A man comes up and says, hey, help, help, help me here in this situation. My brother won't give me my portion of my inheritance. Now, now to be clear, Jesus is not in t- attacking your savings account or your inheritance or your wealth. That is not what Jesus is going after. It's not wrong uh, to have plentiful What he's going after here is a heart that finds security in stuff. Security in things that break. The obsession with having material goods that are not our own and relying on them is at the heart of covetousness. To find safety and security in the mass of things around us, whether it be land, whether it be home, whether it be people, whether it be possessions, at the end of the day, it is to find comfort in things and not in the Creator of those things. It is idolatry, and it must be avoided. It must be rooted out, Jesus says. And he tells us this this very insightful story of a rich man who has a prosperous harvest. Uh, Of course, Jesus would use often provocative imagery in order to force the issue forward. A hundredfold, sixtyfold, those type of ideas to say, this is almost unbelievable. This man hit the jackpot. He won the, the, the $1 billion jackpot. And the man says, what am I going to do with all this money? I don't have enough. There's no bank that can hold it. I have so much stuff. Let me go and build bigger banks. Well, of course, the illustration is that of agriculture. He had so much, he didn't even have enough room for it all. He had to go build a bigger barn in order to, in order to hold it. And the problem comes there in verse 19. Look at it. You see the pride of the man? I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Well, there's nothing wrong, of course, with relaxing. Nothing wrong with eating and drinking and being merry. Of course, God wants us to have all of those things. There's, there's nothing wrong with retirement. There's nothing wrong with leisure or entertainment. You see, this man's life was taken up with these things. And Jesus, in this story, uses one of the most provocative words in the Greek language. Fool. Fool. You are a fool. You are an idiot. Why? Because he made all of his decisions based on the temporal rather than the eternal. Everything was thought about the here and now rather than eternity. Now I want you to think back a little bit to to some obsession you had when you were a teenager. Perhaps some item that you wanted to buy. Maybe it was a car. Maybe it was an 8-track. I don't know. A CD. Something you wanted and you obsessed over it. You wanted it so much, you couldn't wait to have it. You worked all summer long, mowing lawns, uh, babysitting, doing a whole host of things, and you finally got it. And you were the happiest you could be. 
and you relaxed, and you ate, and you drank, and you were merry, but you haven't thought about it in decades. You haven't cared. It, 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 it's, it's down at the dump right now, under a heap of trash. Friend, that is what it is like for you and I to be consumed with stuff that will not be carried over into eternity. We are quite foolish to invest in things that will, will waste away. It is quite foolish, isn't it, for us to invest in the temporal when we are, as Christians, eternal? You see, this man had a sense of complacency, a self-sufficiency about him. He was a fool because he forgot about God and he forgot about death. You've been to a funeral. It is so weird the way we think about death. What do we call them? A celebration of life. We do whatever we can to get away from death. We don't want to think about it. We don't want to be near it. We're just like, yep, that guy's dead and we move on. Why? Because if we thought about death a little bit more, I think we would change the way we make decisions more. Saving for retirement that may not come. Saving for a vacation that isn't going to transform your life. Buying something that is, is you think, going to give you happiness, but it won't. And so you go buy more. See, this man thought that he could escape final judgment and death. And such is the one who focuses on the here and now rather than the great by and by. And the remedy for covetousness is to be generous towards the things of God. That's what Jesus ends there, verse 21. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Friend, how much of your resources are spent on you rather than on God? The remedy is to treasure Christ more than the fleeting treasures of this world. To hold life and its prized possessions loosely and to hold tightly onto the things of God. Friend, all of this stuff we see around us is, is going away. This is nothing. This is meaningless. What is eternal are the people sitting around you. That's where we are investing. In the preaching of the word, and the ministry of the saints, that's where we want to see our, our resources going. To hold life and its prized possessions loosely, my friend. Let go of your stuff. It will not save you. Only Jesus will. Consider the example of Moses in Hebrews chapter 11, who chose to leave being a son of Pharaoh to... to, to Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to, than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. For this ought to serve as a warning to those of you who are in retirement. Do not grow complacent, eating and drinking and relaxing. As one preacher put it best, do not come to Florida to fossilize. but to be used for kingdom work. 
Don't see that your best life is behind you. But see how your free time that you have could be used to serving in the local church. Caring for the souls of saints. Friend, that investment, that's eternal. We'll be talking about that. But, but you buy junk like this around us and you think this is important? Oh, my, my friend, these things are not important. What's important is souls. What we're going to be talking about in a trillion years is how you sacrificed your time, your money, and your energy in order to support the preaching of God's Word and pay for salaries of pastors so that they can preach and teach and lead God's people. What we'll be talking about is how you sacrifice your time and your energy to going over to a single mom's house and helping her follow Jesus, or inviting people into your home and breaking bread with them, not so you can eat, drink, and be merry, but that so you can disciple them and help them follow Jesus. Friend, do you see, those are what we'll be talking about around the fire in a trillion years. Those eternal investments that cannot be taken away. Lastly, danger number five, anxiety. As Christians, we must guard against the danger of coveting, that disease of the heart whereby we worship stuff more than the Creator. And we see Jesus then turn quickly, uh, like a hinge turns on a door, between verse 21 and 22, that, that when you covet things, when you have this enormous focus on stuff, then it naturally leads then to anxiety when you don't have it. To put it a different way, anxiety is the opposite end of the spectrum from covetousness. Those who desire stuff on the other end are those who are anxious to have more stuff because they don't have enough. They envy you who, have, who are prosperous. But how do we deal with anxiety? How do we deal with a heart that is taken up with the necessity need for other things. Well, Jesus here gives us two. First, by prioritizing the kingdom of God over possessions. This is what we were just thinking about, isn't it? Notice a number of things here. He helps them understand that life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Look there, verse 23. He warns them about anxiety by helping them understand the economy of the kingdom of God. And it makes sense, doesn't it? Of course clothing is more important. Well, we're not going to run out in the street and get perhaps ran over by a car because our coat rolled into the street, but we will to save a child or another person. We'll put our life on our line for a human being over some possession. You've all heard the, the you know, funny stories of people when their house is on fire. How they'll go and risk their life in order to save some heirloom. Jesus is saying no one in their right mind does that. Because your life is more precious than your things. And Jesus here is encouraging us to evaluate the kingdom of God over our possessions. I want to point out one other thing here in in, in verses 22 through 31. Uh, Right here, notice verse 25. Uh, friend, I, I, maybe you could spend the afternoon thinking about the logic of this. Look, look with me there, verse 25. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour 
to his span of life. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single second to your life? And we begin to think, well, how would I do that? How could I add, if I just got like a couple more minutes, right? One of the great equalizers is that everyone has 24 hours in the day. Whether you're the president of a Fortune 500 company or you're working at a small mom-and-pop business, you all have the same amount of time. And nobody has uh, any more or any less. We all have equal time. But Jesus goes on to say, as you consider about turning back the clock and adding more time, as if it was possible, look there at verse 26. If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? I want you to think for a minute what Jesus just said. He said, okay, you're outside in the field, you're trying to get the sun to turn backwards to have more time in the day, but you can't do it, you're trying. You, you stood there all afternoon staring at that stinking sun, and it wouldn't ever go backwards, it always goes forwards. And Jesus says, you, you fool, you, you can't even do that, it's a small thing. A small thing, you say? That, that I can reverse time? That's not a small thing, Jesus, that's quite... Pretty big thing. Not all the, no, there's no science in the world that is able to turn back time. That's a small thing, Jesus? Yes, that's a small thing to God. And of course, we have stories in the Old Testament where God stopped time. Literally, time stopped. The sun stood still in the day. It ceased. God is able to do that. In other words, don't worry about things you have no control over. That's the point. Jesus is saying, uh, let my father worry about caring for these things. Stay in your lane. Your lane is not time. Your lane is to do. And, And the argument that Jesus is making here is that God is able, you're not. And if you're not able, you don't need to worry about it. It's his job. Get out of his lane. Let God be God and you be you. So the remedy to anxiety is trusting that God is truly providential. So every time we are taken up with anxiety, you know what we're doing? We're questioning whether or not God is truly a good God. Just this week, I every morning open looking through my emails, got an email. I have a little service where the postal, postal service will send you a, a little scan of everything coming in the mail. Perhaps you have that too. They'll send you an email. Okay, this letter's coming. I open the email and look at it there and, and a little scan, a little, little envelope coming from the IRS. And I was like, mm, no. I was like, I ain't got time for this, Lord. I, I don't know. I don't need audits and all that. And, and, and just in that moment, you got, I got that gut-wrenching feeling of like, oh, this is going to hurt. This is going to be painful. And I had been studying this text all week. I had been reading this. And God just offered up a little, a little illustration for my own tasting. And so I wrestled with it for a few minutes. And then it dawned on me. Oh, I know what this is. This is nothing. It's one of those automated little things that they send to you because you logged into their system. It was nothing. I had made something so small and trivial into this big thing for a moment. And friends, you and I do that every day. 
We ought in those moments to turn to the Father and say, Father, help me to fight this battle of faith. It is a fight of faith. Worry is is a fight of faith. Worrying whether or not God can actually do what He said He will do. And that's what Jesus ends with there in verse 32. He says, fear not, little flock. Fear not, little ones. Why? For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The kingdom. Your salvation is more valuable than anything that you will ever own. You could be the richest man in this world, but those of us who have the kingdom, we're far richer than you. We deal with anxiety by storing up treasures in heaven, making deposits in an eternal bank account that won't wear out, that won't grow weary, by treasuring Christ more than things. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide for yourselves money bags that don't grow old with a treasure in heaven that does not fail. Friend, money wears out, has to be replaced. Your things wear out and you have to have new things. Friend, do you fight the obsessive desire to have something new all the time? To have something better? To always be buying and never be satisfying? You're trying to be God in your life. Rather than trusting that what God has given you is enough. Worry cannot add a single second to your life. In fact, worry will probably shorten your life. We must fight the battle with faith. Believing that our Father who art in heaven will give us this day our daily bread. As He fed the Israelites in the wilderness with manna, so He feeds us. He gives us the strength, the the breath to breathe, the strength to go about our work. He ultimately is the source. Trust that He is a great Father. He has given you the keys of the kingdom He has cared for us in countless ways. Trust His care for you. Friend, what do you treasure and pleasure? What is it that you treasure most? What is it that you find pleasure in? Is it the praise of men and so given to hypocrisy? Do you treasure and pleasure your own freedom to believe as you want Perhaps it's your possessions. What you talk about the most is what you own. You, you brag about, look at all I have. I have to build bigger things because I'm so awesome. I have so many possessions. Look at me. You fool. Tonight your soul is required of you. What will you have then in eternity? Let our affections be in the treasuring and the pleasuring of Christ. He will never grow out. He will never wear out. Store up treasure in heaven. He is our deepest longing to know Him and be with Him forever. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the grace that we have received through Christ. Father, I pray that we would fight against these dangers before us. 
whether it be the danger of hypocrisy or the fear of man. Oh, Father, help us to fight against the, 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 the fear of fleeing, acknowledging that, that Christ is our treasure, even if it costs us our own life. Oh, Father, help us to fight against both covetousness and anxiety. Find our treasure in Christ and in eternity. Help us to live in light of eternity and not of today. Aid us, we pray, Holy Spirit, for your glory and our good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.